This is episode 57 of the Immunology Podcast, Careers Away from the Bench with Drs. Laura Raff and Ami Asher Patel. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where you have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Drs. Laura Raff and Ami Asher Patel from Stem Cell Technologies here to talk about their pivot from the lab to sales. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... So we would like to remind our listeners about the upcoming International Union for Immunological Societies Congress taking place in Cape Town, South Africa from November 27 to December 2nd. Jason and I will be attending. We just could not be more excited about this. So early bird registration until August 30th, and you can learn more at IUIS2023.org. Yep, one more big trip coming up. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. But uh, happy birthday, America. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is. We're going to we're going to, you know, ignite lots of gunpowder in the air as we are opt to do and, and celebrate. So, you know, it's the usual probably have a barbecue at home. Well, I'll just be getting back from a couple of vacations, so it'll be kind of chill, but we'll we'll do something. Very nice. You know, how many years already? Like 1776, right? So. Oh, gosh, you're not going to make me do the math, right? And 50 puts you at 2020. Six, so three years shy of two fifty, so two forty-seven. Okay, okay, almost as old as your president. Uh, sorry, what? No, I didn't say that. No, just <laughs> kidding. But nice. So, how how much long do you think you guys have left? Uh, it's been a oh. it's been a good run, though. It, it, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I, we're having a little bit of geriatric disease. Maybe we just need some. Uh, we need the people at the other podcasts to give us a stem cell infusion and get us back young again. True, true. A middle, middle age crisis, but you'll you'll get through it, guys. I I know you will. We're all we're all counting on you. So, um, yeah. Did you know that Argentina's birthday is on July 9th? Oh, really? No, I did. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's our Independence Day. Quite quite close. So mm-hmm. I'm also having uh, some uh, celebratory. How long uh, ago barbecue. was that? That was in. Uh, so it was in 1816. So we're at. Uh... I know two forty seven minus thirty two seventeen. There we go. We can. I mean, do- we were following your your example. I mean, f- actually, a lot of the like the way the Argentinian politics is organized is modeled after the American model. So you know, interesting. Thank you, know. you for that. You're welcome. You know, sometimes you just got to go tell the British to take a hike, and then things happen. Yeah, yeah. We did. We did ditch the whole. You know, uh, electoral. Uh, we actually uh, directly vote for a president, but that's fine. Yeah, we're we're weird. We're also really big, which is why they did it. For people forget we're more like an analogy to the EU than not. Yeah. The state is kind of like a country. Yeah. You like you you like the thing you're like, oh, I guess it's I guess it is a I mean country. technically it's true. They're all sovereign to a certain level. Yeah, but it wasn't that big when it started, right? It was like just it's 13. Like, so it expanded from, you know, Maine all the way down to South Carolina and Georgia. So it's not that small. All right. You know what's not that small either? Our selection of science for today. Although we're going to try to be brief. That's true. But that was a wonderful segue. But I'll, I'll discuss some really small things first with the, you know, cellular receptor level here. So, well, big concept, small signaling. Ooh, 
All right. I should stop before we, the dad joke police come and get me. All right. So this is called, it's in cell. It's highly multiplex bioactivity screening reveals human and microbiome metabolome GCPROM interactions. First author is Han Wei Chen. Last author is Noah Palm. Came out in cell July 6th. So, which means this is the preprint or the early online first. This is really a technical paper. They use something called Presto Salsa. That is their technology. At a super high level, what they do is they take a GPCR, G-protein couple receptor, they have a library of them, and that has a second plasmid that has beta arrestin tied in, in the GPCR on the inside. They use the TEVs thing, so the tobacco enterovirus cleavage system that you use for protein expression, and then the cleavage site. And so what they have is they're on that cleavage site on the inside. So what they do is they have the, the TEVCS, the T, and then this, this transactivating region. So you have a GPCR with a cleavage site for the enzyme and a transactivating region. That transactivating region has the reporter in it. Okay. Then when you have GPCR signaling activation, you have, well, so, so you have the transactivating, then you, you have three plasmids GPCR with a T8. TA activator, transactivator. Second plasmids, the adapter, beta arrestin 2 with enzyme attached. When you have G protein coupled receptor signaling, beta arrestin moves over to the GPCR. And because the enzyme is there, it cleaves it and releases the, T, the transactivating region. Third plasmid has EGFP in it, activated by the transactivating region from the GPCR. It's cleaved, so it floats away and hits it with, in this case, a barcode. So now what you can do is you can put this into cell systems on a plate, 96 well plate with each, each GPCR has its own reporter plasmid on it. And everyone has the same adapter. And you put a whole bunch of GPCRs and transduced onto different cells and hit them with the same agonist or the same bacterial lysate or whatever else. And you can figure out which GPCRs are activated because you can then sequence everything and because each one has its own barcode you have an internal check for does it glow yes it worked that well worked but then you can pull it all together and sequence and use the barcodes to tell you if you have activation or not and so now you can rapid screen gpcrs for things and so in the way this works is they then went to the gut and bacterial metabolites and this is more of a proof of concept but they show that various human metabolites could be, you know, they could figure out that various human metabolites are being activated as you expect. They found that this uh, specific microbiota bug, Porphyromonas gingivalis, which is an oral bug, uh, has this protease gingipacin A that activates a specific enzyme. And this is kind of new, but made sense, or a specific GPCR, it kind of made sense based on other stuff. So they show, hey, we can find some new things, but this makes sense based on biology. But long and short is you can take the bacterial lysate of a bug or of a human gut, right? And then put that on there and say, we what GPCRs are activated. You can put specific bugs in. You can put uh, beta agonists on there and see that those light up as controls. And so it recapitulates everything. Notice this is the GPCRs that are not the taste receptors or the smell re receptors. So specifically, it's the non-olfactory GPCRs. Most of the nose is thousands, like all these GPCRs, though. So this is everything else for good reason. It's a really cool paper. It's a technology paper, but it's really neat. And I encourage people to look at it. Uh, Presto Salsa.
is what it's called. And then they found some microbiome links, which really was a sanity check, but showed you how fast you can do some stuff with it. So what is the, what's the, how did they, uh, what, what is that supposed to be an acronym for? It is, it is an acronym. So the original thing called Presto Tango. So Presto's parallel receptor ohm expression and screening via transitional, transcriptional output. That's Presto. Salsa. In contrast to tango. I can't figure out how they came up with salsa. <laughs> it maybe is in the paper, but they don't have that nice and clean. Mm. It's, it's, it's built off of tango. So they called it salsa. Yeah, because, yeah, I, I guess it's, I was thinking of salsa as like the sauce, but no, it's salsa as a dance style. Now, I guess it makes sense. So just to be, for me to understand, so in this, when you, this is designed in order, to, do you have a library and then you, you have a library. Uh, introduce one GPCR you, per you, cell, basically. Right, per, per well, along with its Presto Salsa reporter plasmid and the adapter plasmid. So it's a triple transduction. And you get all three in there. Glowing tells you the system's working, but barcoding tells you what happened. Okay. Cool. Okay, very interesting. Like, well, always this... Often you see this technology, uh, new platforms that people uh, devise, and you and you you cannot help thinking, man, how how like this is very complex. Like oh, sometimes they have these really cool ideas, and and it's really nice to see um, uh, how these platforms uh, come around. Although it must have been a lot of testing and you know benchmarking. It definitely is, but like usually GPCR signaling has been stuck with um, radio ligands, so. This is a way around that. Okay. All right. So I also have a, a paper that kind of is about technology in a way. Um, but I also thought it was very interesting because it touches upon a subject that I, I, I really I really like and I think is extremely important, which is, of course, well, vaccination in a way. So I, I, I always think that vaccination is probably one of the high, the most important achievements of, our, of immunology and our study of immunology. And there's a particular one vaccination that was very, uh, has been very, um, what's the word, very iconic or very exa exemplary of what we can achieve um, besides, well, for smallpox has been a huge success. But then I think another huge success has been poly poliomyelitis uh, vaccination, so against polio, and how we have really uh, swiped these disease for most of the world, for there's still some pockets of of wild type polio uh, in, in in a few countries, but it has been you know when you hear the the stories of those huge outbreaks in the fifties and the well and, and and before, it was quite impressive what we have achieved. And so, the the thing with polio vaccination is that you you might remember from uh, your medical school training is that we have basically two ways that we can vaccinate against polio, and there were these two uh, different fundamentally different vaccination strategies developed, one by Jonas Salk, in which you have a, uh, a, a at what is called an activated polio vaccine, in which basically you take polio virus and you inactivate it with formaldehyde that prevents, kind of kills the virus, you know, it prevents it from replicating and uh, just gives, you know, the epitopes for your immune system to be, to be trained on. And that uh, vaccine is uh, inoculated through uh, an injection. Um, and it's a very good vaccine in the sense that it gives you protection against, you know, uh, the 
the neuronal the neural effects of polio and uh, and 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 the the potential um, um, neurotropism of the virus and then you know prevents paralysis and other uh, issues with your uh, nervous system um but it does not protect against kind of transmitting the virus your virus it's a virus that a poliovirus really likes to uh, home in your gut and it will replicate in your gut and that's why it also gets excreted from uh, your feces and and that's a way by which polio is transmitted another vaccine that has been really kind of the workforce the workhorse of our efforts to eradicate polio is what are known as the sabin vaccines that are um, made by a different mechanism, which was this strains that were uh, identified by, what was his name? Seven, I forgot his actual first name. Um, and he actually showed that there were, uh, he could find uh, attenuated strains that would not generate uh, poliomyelitis on the patient. So they, they would not, if you get uh, this as an oral, uh, you could take this virus in low doses orally and it would replicate in your gut, it would generate a very strong immunity in the gut, and that would prevent you from, you know, in the future, getting the polio virus and also letting it replicate in your own gut. And that had a very beneficial effect on reducing transmission of polio. And But there's a huge issue with these vaccines. Um, although they are the cheapest and the most easy to administer because you don't need, you only need to like, take up a couple of drops and it has been used especially in in, in kind of uh, um, not developed countries to 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 uh, guide the efforts of vaccination. There is a huge issue, which is uh, because the virus is kind of alive in a way, uh, as alive as a virus can be, the virus replicates in your gut. It is does not cause disease, but it does because the virus, as any virus does, mutates as it reproduces there is a chance that you will generate, you will revert back to the original poliovirus that does have uh, a neurotropism that does affect your uh, your nervous system and it will give you the, this, the, 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 the disease of polymyelitis. So a big issue has been that has, as, as less people get polio, these polio that derived from the vaccination becomes more and more important. And particularly in cases where you have a, a population that is vaccinated with this with this particular strain, and then there's people around them that are not vaccinated at all, these people are susceptible to this potentially uh, reverted virus strain. And this has been the origin of a lot of small outbreaks that have happened uh, in, in, uh, throughout the years. And uh, it is the source of some of the strains that have been seen uh, in the in last decades have been a consequence of reactivation from uh, vaccines. So what can we do about this? Well, we now we all the advancements that we have an understanding of, of how uh, polio works, there has been a new vaccine that has been kind of designed more rationally to prevent this re reversion to the wild tab or reversion to a virulent strain. And this is kind of kind of a, of a new. It was uh, known as a, as a modified version of uh, uh, poliovirus. So in this case, you have three different strains, which have have been you know, the traditionally ones generating disease. We have mostly uh, eradicated the the the, the wild versions of strains two and three, 
uh, and strange one are still existing in small pockets in, mid in the Middle East. Uh, but then we have strain two, which the Sabin, so the Sabin version, the attenuated version, has the highest uh, propensity to revert to a virulent strain. And recently, there has been a new vaccine available, which has been rationally designed to prevent this from happening. And this is basically they what they what they did is they saw what are the modifications that the Sabin um, vaccine has that makes it not. Uh, virulent as it is, and they found ways to lock this particular uh, genome uh, genome in in place and prevented that individual mutations that happen when, as the virus uh, uh, multiplies to revert back to the virulent strain. So basically, you have nowadays it has been approved for emergent use an oral polio vaccine that is called this new modified version. Uh, that has they basically modify the genome in a way they that particular one one place called domain five, which is very much associated with the virulence of of the of the, the neurovirulence of the of the uh, polio uh, virus, and they have really locked this. And so far, this there has been for a couple of years has already been used. Uh, uh, for, for vaccination, uh, when, when outbreaks happen, particularly outbreaks occurred by previous Savin vaccinations. And it's very, has been very successful in both controlling the disease and then um, not generating, you know, viral uh, vaccine-derived uh, infectious viruses. And so the paper here, uh, so following from the success of this uh, uh, type 2 polio virus, uh, this vaccine derived from type 2 polio, they now design the ones for type 1 and type 3. And this would allow us to vaccinate against the whole range of possible polyviruses that are have existed. Although type 2 and type 3 are not really found in the wild anymore. But well, you could always, you never know if something like this could go come back. And basically what they show in this paper and I know it's a lot of it's a very long introduction because in in the end I think what really what really I really like is knowing that we are still trying with this. I mean the polio vaccine has been over it has been out there for over fifty years, um, and how we can by rethinking rationally uh, these vaccines we can bring up a new kind of a new era in a way to solve a problem that was caused by the vaccination in a way and by the success of the vaccination. Um, so but what they show in this paper is that. Similarly to what happened to the strain two, the novel or oral uh, poly vaccine derived from strain two, um, they show that for strains one and three, they can also generate vaccines that have a live attenuated polio virus that uh, substantially reduces the, that has a much more uh, replication uh, the, 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 it has a similar replication fitness so you can pr produce it in in vivo cells similarly to the original seven strains um it has when they tested in in mice they have mouse models in which they have uh, introduced a polyreceptor to through the mouse cells so they can use mice as a, as a model for studying uh, the 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 virus and the vaccines they show that uh these actually are much are more attenuated than these original seven uh, vaccines, and that if you inject the mice with high doses of these of these uh, vaccines, 
they don't uh they are a lot safer to use and then because they have much uh, much higher genetic stability and this they do is particularly one of the things they do is they modify their rna polymerase of the poliovirus to be more uh, um to have more be more faithful in the replication therefore reducing the chances of mutations and they also prevent recombinations and they change around the genome to reduce the chance of recombinations and so they show that these vaccines as well are attenuated and they have a much lower tendency to uh they don't revert back to the original to really virulent strains and even if they if they accumulate uh, beneficial kind of uh, uh mutations that give them a fitness increase when it comes to replication they don't revert to uh, the all the markers of, of of virulence that are important for the for for the the virus attacking the nervous system of of a person. So I think the take home message from this paper is that uh, using they use mouse models and they also show some data from the uh, novel uh, oral polio uh, virus vaccine too that it has already been tested in Africa, and they show that. By you doing this rational design of the virus, you can actually improve substantially the safety profile of the vaccine, which has been a huge issue uh, in our efforts to eradicate polio from from the human population. Uh, sorry, before I uh, go to my second uh, paper, I forgot to mention who were the uh, talented scientists that uh, carried out the, the the study on polio on poliovirus uh, vaccines. So um, I just want to say a shout out to first author Ming Ye uh, Te Ye uh, and corresponding authors Raul Andino from the University of California, San Francisco, and uh, Andrew McAdam uh, from the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control in the UK. They were the authors of the paper that was published in Nature, and it was called Genetic Stabilization of Attenuated Oral Vaccines Against Polyvirus Types 1 and 3. So it was just the RNA polymerase and a few other mutations? They do other stuff to make it not be able to be virulent again? So basically, they do. They have three main uh, modifications that they do. On the one hand, there's a particular... Um, structure in the five prime uh, untranslated region of the genome that um generates a structure that is associated that is required for the for the for the uh, virus to replicate in neurons and at the temperatures that neurons are in in uh, contrast to the temperature which is a bit lower in which you find the pterocytes and the, the 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 cells in the in the gut so by modifying this, and this is, was also present in the, sab, in the original Sabin attenuated strain, and that's why it, the virus does not replicate so well in neurons, and it therefore is not uh, so dangerous. And then there's a second thing that they do, is a little bit more um, kind of dramatic. They change a complete uh, um, a recombination site that is, that is present in the genome, and they move it to another part of the genome, and this prevents the virus from re generating uh, the the kind of the correct virulent version with a single mutation and this really makes it a lot harder for the virus to revert back to the original to the virulent uh, way and then they also have these mutations on the on the uh, polymerase that 
reduces the 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 mutation rate, which of course is not good for a virus. It's against viral viral evolution, but it's good for us because we want that that genome to be reproduced and nothing else. So those are basically the three main things that they do, uh, strategies that they use to uh, modify the genome. Interesting. All right. Well, I don't even know if I have a segue I can use here from polio, but staying in the gut with gut infection, inflammation, cytokines, I guess. Um, I'm going to talk to you about a paper that's kind of made the rounds recently. It's in Science Translational Medicine. It's called Microbiome Alteration via Fecal Microbial Transplantation is Effective for Refractory Immune Checkpoint Inhibitor Colitis. So this is Taylor M. Hansi's the first author, last author is Ying Hong Wang. This is a clinical trial of FMT in people who received immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies for cancer who then developed, uh, after that therapy, uh, immune checkpoint-mediated colitis. And they showed that FMT in 12, pa- they had a study of 12 patients and 92% achieved IMC clinical remission. Um, so 10 patients achieved it after the first FMT, three required a repeat, and two of them had no response. So they got one salvage out of the repeat um, for mediating. That alone is a big deal because it gets rid of one of the major side effects. But they also showed that um, people who were responders tended to have people who responded to the chemo, to the therapy, the new checkpoint therapy more robustly tended to be the ones who responded to the FMT more robustly. So they tended to go together. And, and this is just a reminder, this is after failure of steroids or uh, infliximab or intivio and vedalizumab for other treatment. Um, they also then were able to link this to certain bacteria. So um, this effect is driven by increases on Concell and bifidobacter bacterium, which were depleted in the responders before treatment. So that's another big thing that they were able to find. Um, and this was also CD8 T cell dependent. So they were seeing able to see a drop in CD8 T cells in the colon after FMT, but not in other populations. In particular, they couldn't find a signal. Um, it's not a super long paper. They, as I said, found these microbiota that worked, that were signatures of it. But um, What's just fascinating is it was the single FMT was able to overcome this major side effect of it. And that the donor microbiome was very different than the microbiome of people undergoing this. And the donor microbiome had a different baseline characteristic than even people who are going to get the therapy and then had a shift to, so two parts. One, if you are going to respond to the therapy, your microbiome was different than baseline to an extent. And if you got colitis, it was different. And it was very different than the donor they were getting. And so you're seeing a shift all the way back to a baseline, essentially, from this. It wasn't just like, oh, the drug screwed it up. The fact that you have this additional inflammation is also a sign that your microbiome was a little bit different from other people at baseline. But there was no difference in the diversity between patients with complete response or non complete response or FMT donors at baseline. So, but, but the, the stool was distinct from the stools of people with complete response, but people who didn't have a complete response to therapy were not that different than the donors. 
So being someone who responded to therapy was a sign that you had a different microbiome to begin with. And then you also were different if you had the inflammation with the colitis, and then you could get back to normal afterwards. And is it possible that this baseline um, microbiome of these different uh, patients is associated with whatever um, clinical response and stuff? Yep. No, whatever previous therapies that they had. Maybe. Um, they don't get into that level of detail here, but they do think your microbiome at baseline influences your ability to have response to checkpoint therapy, generally speaking. Yeah, well, we did discuss that last episode, right? right. right? Yeah, so, this is, so this is tying into the last episode, right? Where we know that, and now you're seeing a, a negative sequela, which is this gut inflammation, but then that also can respond to FMT. And sorry, is this, uh, which kind of uh, cancers was it? Was just any? Genitourinary. 50% majority of stage four disease. Um, so mostly it looks like general urinary. Okay. Yeah, I guess we go back to the point is that it does seem to matter, like I guess both for the efficacy of the therapy and also the kind of side effects that you get from it. What's in your gut? Mm -hmm. It sculpts your immune system. Oh my. We're just all little carriers. You know, we're just mech brains in a meat suit carrying bugs around. That's our job. Very, fair enough. Well, okay. So um, we're going to stay in the gut. Second paper is, is titled Dedicated Macrophages Organized and Maintained Enteric Nervous System. Uh, also published in Nature. First author, Maria Francesca Viola from the group of Geo, uh, Geo Bookstanks at Ca uh, the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. So... I think I'm going to try to be a little bit, um, give a high uh, level um, idea of this paper, but I think very nice because we all know, I think we know by now that, you know, macrophages, we always think, as, you know, macrophages as this, you know, bottomless pits of uh, phagocyting, phagocytic cells that, you know, eat bacteria and dead cells. And I think sometimes we do them a disservice by thinking of them as little trash, like walking trash cans, uh, when actually they also have a very important role in pruning and in removing excess cells and excess things. And in particular, excess uh, uh, neurons or like uh, synapses. And, and in this role, in this uh, pro uh, procedure they do, is, which is called pruning, like you prune uh, an overgrown uh, um, tree or something, they uh, have a very important role in maintaining proper neuronal connections and uh, removing excess. And this is now of the de development in the brain, and you know, and I think it's part of what we understand of how you know children's brain develops and things like that. But as I think you have said before, we do have a little second brain. Where is it, Jason? In our guts. And by in the way, macrophages are wonderful, wonderful cells and not just garbage cans. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I, I, I have to admit that I find myself underestimating them. So this is, you know, uh, the uh, a requiem for the macrophages. Um, so we have these, this enteric nervous system, which is basically a collection of neurons. And it's organized in 
two major uh, hubs, two plexuses, myenteric and submucose uh, plexuses. And in this case, they, they focus on understanding how the 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 these two the, this this uh, enteric nervous system develops in early age and then uh they they also discuss about a, another paper that they published in which they look at the importance of uh the organization of the uh, ENS in later uh, adulthood but here we're going to focus on early what they show in this paper is that there's a particular uh subset of macrophages uh, which are um this um macrophages that are resident in the muscularis externa, so muscularis externa macrophages. And they are very important in organizing the ENS early in life. And they do this by pruning synapses and phagocyting neurons that are, are part of the system and that the absence of their function has negative effects on, you know, how the whole thing works. Like, for example, how how well the the movements of the bowel have happen after in in later life so they do this basically by characterizing the the the, the ens of mice at different stages they focus on before like before weaning so in the first uh, couple of weeks of life and uh they show that um there are indeed these macrophages that are colonizing the gut before birth already uh, they already knew that they were required for the survival of these neurons from the from the uh, ENS uh, in adulthood. Uh, but when they look into how the ENS uh, is, uh, evolves in very in the early stages, they show that actually they see that actually there is a reduction in the number of neurons and and neural uh, synapses uh, between stage I think stage ten and day twenty one. So there's kind of an excess and then there's a reduction. And they show that this reduction is dependent on the action or is associated to the presence and the phenotype of the particular phenotype of these macrophages that are resident and are associated to these neurons. They show that um, uh, the absence of, so they, they can show that there's macrophages, you know, uh, phag phagocytized, phag which are phagocytical and are taking up uh, neurons and uh, from the ENS, and that they're important in order to uh, ensure the correct development of these of these neurons there. And um, they show also that these the development of these macrophages is in a way guided by the uh, neurons themselves, by the ENS themselves, through production of TGF beta, and um, that kind of this system self kind of self uh, regulates in a way. So I think that's basically what I wanted to say about this paper. There's of course a lot of details, very nice microscopy showing the 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 the, the direct kind of vicinity of these macrophages and the neurons. And they kind of make the point that we might be seeing something like, you know, like a microglia situation in which uh the microglia prunes neurons in the brain. So you might be seeing something similar. Um, I guess it's not so surprising that it's a similar um, uh, theme uh, applies to our little second brain in the gut. So now you know, macrophage is important to keeping your second brain properly developed and not overgrown in your early life, or at least in the mice.
some of us on the stem cell immunology quiz are macrophages. And I would just like you to appreciate how important we are. Of course you are. Of course. And as my monthly reminder, enterocytes are just fancy macrophages. Well, would I go that far? I don't know. But I'll, I'll give you this. But if you're a TLR that intakes things, if you're, sorry, if you're if a cell that has a bunch of TLRs on it, intakes things and secretes cytokines based on what you eat, what are you if not just a fancy macrophage? All right. I want to half accept that uh, just because I'm, I'm stubborn and I don't want to admit that you might be right. That's okay. And I'm a memory B cell. So, you know, we have, you have to remember we, things. You're going to hold, you're going to hold on to that for a long time. I we move in different circles, you know? Fair enough. Well, speaking of different circles today, we're going to be talking about different career paths in science uh, with Drs. Laura Raff and Emmy Asher Patel from Stem Cell Technologies. But before we get to that, have you ever considered moving from an academic career over into an industry position? Do you wonder what would be the right fit for you or not? Many stem cell employees start in academia and successfully transition to fulfilling careers in biotechnology, either inside or outside the lab. Listen to some of them describe their personal journeys by visiting www.stemcell.com slash academia hyphen two hyphen industry. Hi, everyone. Uh, we are joined today by two special guests. We have uh, Dr. Laura Raff and Dr. Ami Asher Patel. They are both uh, employees at Stem Cell Technologies, and they're going to talk to us about their experience uh, working in the sales departments at Stem Cell. Uh, Laura is Associate Director of Sales of the immunology, of, I would say immunology area at Stem Cell. She has a PhD uh, from the University of South Cal Southern California. And uh, Amy is Senior Account Manager also at uh, the immunology area of Stem Cell. And she has a PhD from the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And we're very happy to talk to you today. And we're looking forward to maybe hear a little bit about your. Um, your research arch, or how did you uh, move from academia to industry? What do you like about your position? So uh, welcome to the Immunology Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So to jump in, um, maybe we can take it one at a time. But um, Ami, could you talk first, what do you do now? I think we'll start with what you each do now and explain that. And then we can talk about how you get there, because I think it, knowing the end may be better in this case first. Yeah. Um, so as Brenda mentioned, senior account manager is a fancy way of saying that I work with scientists in the biotech area. Um, and I work specifically with any scientist um, in the immunology, immuno-oncology field, um, CAR-T um, therapies, basically. And I talk to them about their research um, and figure out if there are any products from stem cell portfolio that they could be using in their research. Um, so that is one aspect of it. The other aspect is, of course, troubleshooting. We already have uh, customers who currently use our products. Um, so if they run into any issues or if they are unsure of how a particular reagent works, um, I'm there to help them. Um, I go into the lab sometimes to demo some of our reagents. I can talk over the phone with them, guide them through the protocols. Um, and essentially, there's a lot of communication that happens over emails as well. Does that help? The short and sweet of it? I think so. And how about you, Laura? Yeah, so I am lucky enough to actually work with Ami along with five other sales representatives in the region as an associate director. So I, I really um, help support uh, Ami and, and her colleagues uh, supporting the scientists. So I join Ami on 
site visits. I help with more complicated demonstrations of how to use the products, help with some troubleshooting. Um, so I do still work uh, in the lab and, inter and interact with the scientists occasionally, but another big aspect of my uh, job is also just supporting um, the account managers and helping them strategize and um, yeah, think more on in the business sense as well. Maybe. I would like to ask, is there any particular reason or any particular circumstances that motivated you to make the jump from, from, from your academic uh, background, your, from your PhDs, and also from uh, any career that you had after, and that you think, uh, maybe an experience that you think might be uh, useful for our listeners to, to hear about your transition story? Sure. Yeah, I guess I can go first. Um, so, yeah, as you said, I did I did the PhD and postdoc. And after that, I actually went into industry, but as a scientist and worked at a uh, company out in Santa Monica developing antibodies for oncology therapeutics. Uh, and I loved that. I actually loved being a scientist, um, leading different programs and also doing the wet work at the same time, um, but decided to to explore other op opportunities and ways to support and be involved in science without being on the bench when my husband matched for residency. Uh, and we were forced to make a move across the country. And so I did a lot of informational interviews to just try to learn about alternative careers that still, you know, allowed me to utilize my PhD, all the training I had, um, but outside and off the bench, I guess, at the end of the day. And I came across um, actually a scientific sales representative position at stem cell. I'd used stem cells products before and thought, hmm, this is an, an interesting opportunity. I can absolutely apply the immunology and all the research I had done up until that point in, in a different way and really understand the business side, which was appealing to me. And so I applied and actually just fell in love with the culture of stem cell, um, with the motto and the drive of stem cell, which is scientists helping scientists, and took a leap of faith, I guess, at the end of the day. I went with my gut. It was not an easy decision by any means, but At the time, I thought, okay, I can do anything for a year. And if I hate it, I can go back, which everyone tells you you can't go back. But in all honesty, yes, you can. <laughs> you can absolutely go back if you really wanted to and make a career uh, move. But I loved it. It was amazing to get into many different labs, not just focused on one small project um, that you're hyper-focused on. Uh, I love learning about all the different groundbreaking research that's happening both in academia, but also um, in biotech and at pharma. And um, so, yeah, I've stuck with it. And I've been at stem cell for 10 years now um, in the sales department. Yeah. Ami, do you want to share, I guess, how sort of your transition is a little different? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll answer this question in two parts. Um, so I don't know, a lot of people don't know that I actually worked in industry before um, restarting my second attempt at PhD. Um, so I was working as a research associate in between degrees um, and I knew at that point that I always wanted to have like a more translational research project and I knew that 
I would be better suited in a biotech or a pharma um, company. So um, there were some difficulties I ran into in terms of um, just the market that was um, at the time when I left uh, pharma. And then I actually came back to um, academia to restart my PhD. And initially I knew that I would want to go as a scientist back into pharma, but um, as it happens many times with people <laughs> in the course of my PhD and postdoc, I realized that maybe I don't want to go back to uh, being a bench scientist. Uh, I just knew I wanted to be in biotech or pharma. Um, and similar to Laura, I did a lot of informational interviews during the last couple a couple of years of my PhD and even during my postdoc um, to figure out what um, kind of role or career would be better suited for me. Um, and I had a checklist, so sales was never there uh, in my <laughs> to be honest. I had never thought of a career in sales. Um, so I did not have many informational interviews with people in sales, but I did chat with a lot of people and kind of um, figured out like this, the, there are some careers that are absolutely not going to work for me. Um, and at the same time, I was also attending career fairs um, and I happened to meet a couple of, um, I step, actually stopped by the stem cell booth and I met a couple of really great uh, people, um, Ting Ting, who is not here anymore, and Lin, who is also uh, currently at Stem Cell. Um, and we chatted and they talked about their roles and I was almost sold. I was like, all right, this sounds like perfect. There's people and there's science and those are both aspects that I really enjoy. Um, so I, again, like Laura, took a leap of faith. I was like, let's apply, let's see where this goes. And I gave myself a year. I was like, okay, so let's see where, in a year if I still enjoy it or not. Um, and it's been five years. I'm still here, loving it, um, no regrets. <laughs> No regrets. I like that. Jason, Jason, Jason is, feels, you know, he identifies with the feeling, don't yeah. you? I, 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 I jumped from academia to industry when my PI uh, went away one day to another country and didn't come back. He was ghosted by his PI. Yeah. Sad. Very sad. Um, but you talk about troubleshooting and that being a big part of your job, which sounds like there's some science involved there. I wonder if maybe you could talk about that a little bit, because I think a lot, a lot of listeners have used stem cell products or other products from anyone and had to call up tech support subtime. But we, you know, I think most people know from one end, how, how does it work on the other end, especially when you're like, it's a customer service. So you can't just tell them to pipette it the right way if they're screwing that up right like or what have you there there's obviously some sales and people skill but also there's probably some like things that you guys don't see or you find problems and other stuff so i don't know if you could deep dive on that a little bit i think there's a lot there sure i guess i can take this one first on me and then you can jump in if, if you feel differently um you're right we can't ever go in and just say well it's the end user um and, and say that that's that's what's happening uh but oftentimes with troubleshooting you you i just put on my scientific hat again as a scientist and usually there is you know some small tip or trick that we, you know, have discovered over the years, you know, utilizing the stem cell products that we can bring to them and share with them um, to help sort of turn the, the experiment around. It usually is something really small that people don't realize is a big deal or they, you know, veered away maybe from the protocol slightly from what was stated and, and made a few changes. And if you just help redirect, um, that usually does, does work. But also a lot of the troubleshooting that we do is 
not the basic, like a lot of people are obviously doing things a little bit off label almost like isolating a cell type that we don't have a kit for, and we're just helping them optimize. So it just, it's, you know, putting two different brains together, being creative, thinking of different ways of doing it. Um, and so it's usually not, well, it's not always just the end user, right? It, it's more just being creative as scientists together. And I think if you approach it from that sense, um, yeah, it usually works out pretty well in the end. I don't know, Ami, what do you think? Yeah, it's pretty similar, I guess, thoughts. Um, of course, we can never tell the customer that they're doing something wrong. And also they have experience, they have used different products. So, um, and they are Scientists, after all, so I'm sure they, everybody has a way of doing their experiments. But sometimes it does happen that a customer is probably misreading something in the protocol, or if they are so used to doing certain things their way, they might not realize that some of the steps are different in the protocol, or they may have missed something. So basically, when we offer troubleshooting, we just end up going into the lab and doing the assay, like experiment with them, or we ask them to do it and then we provide suggestions and tips and that oftentimes um, helps a lot and customers do appreciate us coming in the lab and um, doing like hands-on experiments with them. I guess it's hard to resist the impulse of saying, sir, have you actually read the insert in the kit? Uh, it's like, you know, the, the old good old, did you turn it on and off uh, to fix this? Um, but I guess that oftentimes uh, when you are a, a consumer and you know, on the other end, um, I, sometimes I feel a little bit, um, I don't want to say like, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to call them for this. Like, oh, this is, I'm sure it's me. Like sometimes I feel a bit hesitant to like contact uh, this, the, the, the customer service and, or like, I always think maybe it's not, it's just a small thing. I'm sure. So what would you have, would you have any advice for those people that are struggling? Like, how do you feel? How do you like, like when customers reach out with, you know, valid or kind of genuine uh, questions or how, how does it feel from your side uh, being there and troubleshooting with, with a, with a, with a customer, with a scientist that, you know, has an actual, you know, genuine issue. Um, how is it from your side, the experience? I can take this one. I will say I love it. I would rather have the customer reach out to me directly and ask me something rather than self-doubt. Um, to be honest, I think that's the best answer. Um, I love it. Um, I, I have a lot of customers who directly reach out um, and they may say like, I'm not sure what's going on. It could be me. It could be the product. I would rather be there uh, to help them and eliminate some of the things um, and really uh, showcase the product and make sure that they are in the end getting the results that they want from our products. Um, so I will say, please do not hesitate. <laughs> Reach out. Yeah, I'll just add that it's like, why reinvent the wheel? You you know, these kits are in, and products that stem cell offers are of like the highest quality and we've tested them internally so much. They should work really at the end of the day. So there are so many other challenges as a scientist that you face each and every day in the lab. So um, yeah, absolutely reach out and we are more than happy to assist for sure. So I don't know if Jason has a question. Otherwise, I'm going to just quickly ask on, on that kind of related to that. What do you think is the biggest misconception about your job that people that don't do it have? 
Yeah, I can answer this as well. I think initially when I told people that I was moving away from being a scientist and going into sales, there were a lot of raised eyebrows, like within family, friends, even like professionally. Um, and I personally think like it's not valid, I will say. Like um, at the end of the day, you can contribute to science in many different ways. And I think it's important to have an open mind. At the end of the day, I am still a scientist. And yes, I am doing sales, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to um, you know, be a salesperson before a scientist. Um, I don't know if that helps, but I think that's something that people need to just self-realize that there are, there's a reason we are scientists on the other side of the bench this time around. Like we are there to help other scientists make sure uh, we know how it was on the other side of the bench. So we are here to um, help and we are not always selling. I feel like a lot of people think that, oh, if I contact my salesperson, they'll like ask me to buy something or they'll talk about some other product. So uh, at least with, at, at stem cell, we, I would say we are not like your typical salespeople. Yeah, I would say it's it's not the dark side, but that's, that's something I got a lot. Oh, you're going to the dark side. Um, and that stem cell, it, it really isn't. Um, Alan Eves, who, who started the company nearly 30 years ago, uh, he's a MD, PhD himself. He's a scientist. And really his whole mission is to provide like the highest quality products for people to help just enable, make their, their research easier. Um, and we are scientists there, yes, selling the products, but really we're there to help um, support the research at the end of the day. So as Ami said, it really is more based on the science rather than like just making money. It, it's really not that at all, which I think is is more the, the misconception where we're, um, we're there to really support the science. So, so along those lines, and I don't know how much you can disclose, have you ever had is there a story you can share of like a customer question that made stem cell change something that was really cool? Like the customer was doing something and it wasn't working and you fixed it. And now it's a new product or something like that you can share. I don't know if you can or can't because sometimes it's proprietary, but any of those like cool, like back feed from the customer perspective that you guys obviously would be involved in. Yeah. So um, we have, actually many examples. We we receive customer feedback all the time and take it into consideration for product development. That that happens on a daily basis. We even have a feedback mechanism internally from all of the um, you know sales representatives in the field working with the customers to bring that back to R&D to help drive that product development. So that that is ongoing. It happens every single day. We also, um, you know, there are licensing opportunities as well, um, where something is being developed in an academic lab or another lab that's, wow, that is so cool and it could benefit so many more people. And so being able to turn that around um, and be able to, to really support the greater scientific community through that licensing opportunity. Um, I'm going to refrain from giving specifics because again, I'm not a hundred percent what I can, a hundred percent of what I can and cannot share, but absolutely. Um, we get the vast majority of our, our product development ideas from the customers themselves. So what, uh, what do you think are the best parts of your job? Like, so, interacting with with customers but maybe could be something more more mundane or more or it doesn't have necessarily have to do with the job itself but 
about working uh, that is different to the academic uh, style. I don't. I think people often mention things like, you know, contracts and uh, work-life balance. How do you how do you feel about that uh, from your side? Is how much of that is do you think is is true or is a really um, something that you notice as well when you did the transition? Yeah, I will say the flexibility and like owning your own schedule is a big thing for me, I think. Um, in academia, I know we have a flexible schedule, like some people like to come later in the day, some people like to have an early start. Uh, but I think in in regards to like the sales job um, as such, it's flexible in the sense that I can meet my customers at what whatever time works for me. Um, so there is no... Um, I will say like expected time that I should be meeting a customer at whatever first thing in the morning or like later in the evening, like I can reach out with a customer and we can both figure out a time or a day that's flexible and works for both of us. So I enjoy that. And the second aspect, the work-life balance really is um, there. Like I really like having a Monday to Friday job. There is no expectations from stem cell that you're supposed to uh, reply to a customer in the middle of the night or like, I don't know, reply to them over the weekend, for example. And those were some of the things that I experienced in in academic setting where I was expected to answer my PI's email <laughs> or like you just felt the pressure that you are supposed to respond to something that your PI um, asks you, even if it's the middle of the night, for example. Yeah, I, I, I love the flexibility and the work-life balance as well, because I found that to be quite difficult as a junior, junior scientist, I would say, um, and the work-life balance at stem cell and within sales has been wonderful, especially as a parent. <laughs> um, it, it is helpful to be able to, to do both jobs, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, but for me, it's it's the relationships. I, I absolutely love all the relationships I've built um, within the scientific community uh, and within um, internally within stem cell as well. That's my favorite part of the job for sure. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, but before we do, we'd like to ask one quick question. And in this case, I'm going to ask each of you, if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? I know I'm putting you on the spot, so uh, pick any one of them, <laughs> any superpower ever. Reading other people's mind. That's oh. what I love to do. Are you sure about that? Maybe, <laughs> but maybe not At all the time. No. Yes. Is this person convinced by what I'm saying? Are they really going to buy? Are they really going to place the people? <laughs> like, it's just good to have that clarity up front. Like, I would love that. <laughs> Yeah, within sales, I guess, I mean, that makes the most amount of sense, right? Yeah, being able to read someone's mind for sure. I would also love to fly, just to feel the, I like to be on the water, on a boat, feel the wind. So I'm going to go with, I would like to fly. All right. Yeah. Well, there we go. Well, thank you both for coming on. It's a pleasure. It was great. Talking thank to you so much. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. See you next time.